Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Before we get started with today's Hockey PDO cast, I want to give some quick love to our sponsor, SeatGeek. If you've never used it before, it's as good a time as any to start considering the playoff season is just around the corner. SeatGeek is a service which makes buying and selling tickets easier than it's ever been before. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one handy location for you, even going so far as to ensure that you're getting optimal value by alerting you once the prices fall. The best part of it all is that they don't try to sneak in those random fees at the checkout, which means that you know exactly what you're paying for when you're choosing your tickets. SeatGeek's providing my listeners with a $20 rebate off their first purchase today, and all you've got to do is follow a few easy steps. Just download the free SeatGeek app, then go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code and type in PDO. Once you've done that, SeatGeek will send you your $20 rebate. Download the free SeatGeek app, enter the promo code PDO, and you can start saving yourself a bunch of time, effort, and money as you get your hands on whichever tickets your heart desires today. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is someone who's been on the show, I think, twice so far now. This is his uh, third appearance. It's Eric Parnas. Eric, what's going on, man? I'm good, man. Yeah, the hat trick appearance. <laughs> the hat trick appearance. So, and conveniently enough, it's the second time we're having you on, and you're gonna, uh, where you're gonna give us a sort of recap of a uh, of a hockey analytics conference you visited. You're quickly uh, staping, staking your claim to becoming our, uh, or I guess at least part time beat reporter for such events. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I enjoy them a lot, so you know, I uh, will appreciate that role whenever I can get it because they're they're great times. So we're of course discussing the uh, the Sloan Conference, which happened I think a, a, two weeks ago now in Boston, and it's the most high profile of the bunch to take place. Obviously, uh, that's not to diminish what the one in Vancouver that's coming up in a few weeks will be like, and the one that happened in Ottawa a few months ago was like. But the Sloan one just sort of has the most cachet in terms of how long it's been around, and sort of the the names that are involved, not just in hockey but in all sports. And you were there, so I don't know. Like, what do you? What was the most intriguing panel to you? And honestly, it doesn't even necessarily need to be about hockey because I, I know you're interested in other sports as well. And there was such sort of progressive mind there from all those sports so i don't know what what kind of caught your eye the most i guess yeah well the cool thing about sloan is just i mean first of all bringing together people from all sort of different sports and and different places around i guess the continent and even beyond in terms of everyone having sort of like-minded views similar skill sets stuff like that so just to be able to talk sports talk analytics with people 
um, is something that, you know, we don't generally get on a day-to-day basis. So that's always really cool. And I mean, you know, the, the involvement of hockey uh, each year gets a little bit bigger in terms of NHL teams sending people and the media sending people and just generally people going. But, you know, the panels in terms of hockey are few and far between. There's usually the one hockey panel, which, you know, they have their sort of template of, you know, a couple of guys who work for teams that are scared to say anything. And then, you know, the, the token NHL player who doesn't really know why he's there. Right. And so, you know, it, it's fine. It gets better every year. Craig Custance was the moderator this year, and I thought he did a really good job of trying to get some good nuggets out of people and, and, and get some good content. But overall, I mean, that's not really the highlight of it. As you said, you know, there's, it's, in, in other sports, it's so much more developed, and you can get really cool uh, just sort of ideas from how analytics are applied in other sports. And I think you really see that in other sports, we've gotten to a point where people are more comfortable talking about it, maybe not specific metrics or specific ideas, but just the overall applicability of different, uh, you know, uses of analytics. So, I mean, one of the panels that stood out for me was there was a panel that had, I believe, uh, I think it was like five general managers from different sports. And Hmm. Uh, two of them are from the NBA, uh, one from baseball and one from football, I believe. And it was just great seeing those guys go back and forth because, I mean, first of all, most of those guys aren't competitors, so they don't really, you know, care that much about uh, divulging things to each other, although obviously there's, you know, lots of people watching. But, <laughs> right. they, uh, you know, they had some really interesting things to say about how you build a team in, in an analytics era and and managing, you know, delegating to people, having your own analytics department, you know, how you you know, um, how you use analytics, um, in cooperation with other, other things with personality, with, uh, you know, locker room issues and things like that. And, you know, you just saw the GMs are just so comfortable at this point that they have fun themselves. I mean, at one point there was a question that was asked from the audience that was, does your best player have to be your hardest working player in order to win? Um, and the question was, you know, I think mostly, uh, delegated towards the NBA guys. So, Mm. Uh, Bob Myers, who's the general manager of the Golden State Warriors, sort of answered it and was like, oh, well, we have Steph Curry and he's our hardest working player. And he talked about how great that is for his team and sets a great example. And everyone it sort of trickles down the food chain and everyone buys in. So then uh, Daryl Morey, who's the GM of the Rockets, who's sitting across from him, chimes in and goes, well, what if your best player isn't Steph Curry? To which everyone starts dying. And, uh, you know, Bob Myers' response was basically, well, then you got to get rid of that player, right. which everyone was suddenly like, oh, is that a live subtweet of, uh, of Daryl Morey's issue with a guy like James Harden, who's, you know, generally seen as, you know, not a particularly nice guy, definitely not the hardest working guy, something of a controversial figure. So you get interactions like that that you wouldn't get on a hockey panel where it's, you know, a couple of guys who just recently got hired by teams. They don't want to say anything controversial. So I'm hoping eventually we'll get to the point um, with hockey teams where, you know, the GMs and the coaches will be there and it'll be ingrained enough in the culture that it won't just be, okay, is analytics important or is Corsi important? It'll be, you know, how do you use this on a day-to-day basis? What are the best ways to avoid some of the traps that can come from paying too much attention to numbers that are imperfect? And questions like that that are actually useful to people like you and me who sort of know what we're doing, but you know, maybe don't know it as much from the inside out or can always hear other perspectives on it. So that's what I'm hoping we'll get to eventually. But obviously, uh, it's still a great time. Actually, the one other anecdote I'll give you is uh, uh, one of the probably maybe the highlight for me was I was standing at one point with uh, Scott Cullen and Scott Simpson, who are two sports writers, Mm -hmm. and uh, looked over Scott Cullen's shoulder. And I saw 
a guest who I didn't expect to see there, who was the one and only head of analytics for the Green Bay Packers, one Mike Hallbaugh. Oh, Thank no you. way. So that was pretty hilarious. So I pointed that out to the two of them who were, who were freaking out. I know uh, Scott Collins seen the series, and he couldn't believe it. And then a couple of the other hockey guys later were laughing about it when I told them. And I was thinking about, like, should I go say something? But I was like, listen, the guy, probably the last thing he wants is people coming up to him and being like, hey, you were that guy everyone hates and making a murder. So. Yeah, it must be crazy because I, I know he's had that job for a few years with the Packers and he must have attended these sorts of events all the time. And I, I'm sure people that knew him personally knew that, uh, you know, his sister was killed and were sensitive to that issue. But obviously in the past year, uh, since last year's Sloan Conference, for example, like his life must have changed changed so much in terms of just the way uh people might approach talking to him like i'm I'm sure you guys weren't the only ones that were just kind of like staring at him dumbfounded well i i didn't actually notice other people staring at him i mean he was Hmm. talking to people but i didn't get the sense that there were other people who had the same reaction as me because i was kind of looking around a bit for it um and at one point i think he probably could have told that i was staring a little bit at him and i was like oh no he's gonna call security on me or something but uh yeah no it was interesting because you know it's one of these things where you know, the guy had a terrible tragedy happen to him and his family. Yes. And what he got out of it was basically everyone thinking he was the bad guy yeah. or one of the bad guys in the series when really, you know, all he did, even if you totally buy into the series, the the worst thing he did was maybe being a little closed minded. So yes. it's it's too bad. Yeah, no, it is. I just remember, like, you're right. It's it's a very unfair situation to kind of even judge anyone based on how they're acting in such circumstance when they're dealing with tragedy like that. But I remember just watching that show and thinking, like, wow, this guy's just like a really weird dude. And like, what's his deal? And then when I when someone passed it along to me that he was, I think he's like the Green Bay Packers video guy or something like that, or like some I forget what his title is. But I was like, holy crap, he works in sports and he actually has like a high profile gig. Like he's right there on their on their uh, employee list on their website. And I was like, this is, this is mind blowing right now. Yeah, no, I mean, he's the head of analytics right now. I think at the time he was a video intern or something, but yeah, that's, that's what, uh, that's what Green Bay, the Packers are, are doing with analytics. Is that guy? So, <laughs> no. But circling back to your your point about the sort of dichotomy between hockey and the other sports, I think that it, it's really telling because you mentioned that uh, it, it's a bunch of guys who are sort of uncomfortable with discussing and divulging th- certain things. Whereas in basketball and and football, you have these GMs who have been doing this for so long now they can kind of talk about her in a more relatable casual way without fear of of saying something that's going to totally rock the boat and i think it ties into this idea of kind of the next frontier for hockey and we discussed this last time when you came back from the ottawa conference where we we both agree that tracking is the next thing the next shoe to drop for hockey analytics right where i'm not sure it's necessarily gonna discredit a lot of the work that's happened because uh in my limited work with tracking microstats personally myself it, it, a lot of it kind of supports uh the overarching themes we already work with on a daily basis but it could potentially shift our attention to certain trends and and maybe uh make us think differently about the sport and we don't really have information like that readily available whereas uh in basketball for example they have sports view and and football they have all this all all this tape that's available that breaks things down in in much more palatable sizes and it's a shame right it's sort of encouraging because it there's a reason to believe that we're going to learn so much more about the sport in the next couple of years but at the same time it just seems like the process in getting there has been slow slow and painful 
Yeah, and there's just something about hockey that makes it, I don't know what it is about the, the culture of people involved in hockey from inside and out, but there just seems this this resistance to everything that's new that isn't really that present in, I mean, it may it definitely was in baseball at the beginning, but I don't think it's been as present in basketball or in football because, I mean, football is a sport, sure, you know, you can break things down a little more easily into play-by-play, but it's such a complex sport, and they've done so little comparatively uh, in terms of analytical analytic findings and in terms of teams using it, um, especially in terms of on-field stuff. And yet, you know, I went to the, the football panel, they had it Sloan, and they had some really interesting discussions between, you know, guys who are in the public, a guy like uh, Brian Burke, not the hockey Brian Burke, but the right football now. Brian Burke, who's done, uh, who's done some good work online, between him and a GM and um, Sandy Wheel, who who now does uh, work for Cranky Sports, but who was the head of analytics for the Ravens for a while, like guys like that, and then they had John Urschel, who's a lineman for the Ravens, who you know everyone's probably heard of in passing, who's basically the guy who's you know a certified genius, but is a lineman for the Ravens, and right. who is you know completing his doctorate or whatever it is in the offseason at MIT, um, and they them just having fascinating discussions on that panel about both implicit and explicit analytics, and you know, guys using it and what's what's stopping some people from buying in. And it was, you know, such a fascinating discussion. And it seems like it's it's become, you know, despite the fact that we're getting a little more buy-in in hockey, it's still tough to see those discussions in public without people recoiling into, well, it's not everything and we have to be careful about with like, you know, everybody knows that. Like, you know, the the percentage of people out there who are taking analytics too seriously and buying in too much is so minuscule compared to the amount of people who just don't think it's important as important as it should be so we really shouldn't need to have those kind of conditions placed on everything we say and it's kind of exhausting yeah it's so frustrating and you see it all over the place at these conferences and on tv where even people who are uh more open-minded and and willing to kind of listen and integrate some of this stuff into their analysis like feel the need uh because they know that they're just going to be skewered in, in the comment sections or or by people on twitter just just have, feeling the need to preface everything they say by listen analytics isn't everything and it's like who are these who are the like it seems like a sort of a straw man at this point i'm sure there's uh a few people that probably just sort of discredit every sort of uh feeling based thing and just solely look at the numbers but for the most part people like you and i and and everyone else out there really kind of integrates all these different uh means of analysis into into painting a bigger picture so i I just think that once we finally get to the point where we need where we just stop feeling the need to preface it with analytics aren't everything but uh we'll be i think a lot in in a bit much better place and it also goes back to the difference between uh, analytics as a concept and specific metrics. Because mm. I would definitely agree that there are still people who, let's say, overvalue Corsi as yes. a standalone metric, things like that. But analytics, I mean, obviously people can define it in different ways. I think of it as a process. And to me, you know, analytics can't be wrong or an analytic can't be wrong because analytics is just the process whereby you're analyzing information. And you want to have as much information as you can and you need to know you know, the, the fallbacks and the, the weaknesses of every type of statistic and every type of eye test and every type of input you have into your whatever that process is. And so, you know, analytics, good analytics involves taking everything into account and, you know, boosting your, your evaluation based on things that are important and, you know, accounting for, for different factors. So when people say, you know, analytics aren't everything, to me, that's kind of a fallacy because analytics are everything. It's just certain metrics 
can't be overused or you run into dangers. Yeah, no, it's it's the, the the numbers don't lie. The people using them do, right? It's it's very easy to misapply information or use it incorrectly, and then all of a sudden, people that might have otherwise been willing to listen to you, but now they see that you were incorrect, and then all of a sudden they sort of blame the numbers instead of the person who recited it incorrectly, right? And so it's it's kind of a catch twenty two situation that way. Yep, exactly. All right, let's. Uh, I feel like we covered the Sloan comments pretty well there. Um, I, okay, one actually, one final thing before we get out of here. So, spinning it forward, I mean, we just discussed how uh, hockey has a long way to go, but there's reasons to believe that we'll 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 get into a better place in the next couple of years as as more information becomes available. But you would you agree that uh, it's getting better just in the regard of more teams paying attention? Like from what I saw, nearly 20 teams or so had representatives there. And while I don't necessarily think that having someone there means you're all of a sudden going to be incorporating the stuff that's being talked about or the thought process into all your decisions, at least it means you're willing to devote some resources to it and kind of listen to it or, or acknowledge its existence but i don't know like do you think that it's going to keep getting bigger and bigger or do you think we're sort of at a little bit of a plateau here until we get more of that information where more teams will buy in yeah i think we're moving from the point i mean there was there's sort of stages of this i think we're moving away from the stage where every or most teams i would say every team sort of had somebody in their front office who paid attention to what was going on and can kind of you know if the gm wanting to know someone's own entry numbers wanted to know their coursey that person would be able to come up and make that argument and i think we've been at that stage for quite a while it was only a matter of how much the gm was asking for that and how much they were uh, weighing that in their evaluation i think we're we're starting to move to the point where Teams are hiring people to do original analysis to the extent that they can, bringing on you know people under the original people to do original analysis, and that's sort of going to lead to a little more differentiation probably between the teams who are paying big attention to this and who are really uh, buying into it and those who are just sort of dabbling in it. So yeah, I agree. I think in, in, in a few years we'll see it get closer to the point where we want to see it. Um, I think that before... Uh, the point where we're, we're, we'll really make a big step will be the point where there will be, you know, GMs who aren't necessarily stats guys, but who really buy into, you know, that side of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, any yep. of any of the guys who have been hired or some of the guys who are a little younger and, and can buy into it more when those guys start becoming the, the prime decision makers. Um, that's the point, I think, where everyone will be a little more comfortable with this. Everyone is sort of knows that most other teams are doing something with analytics and it won't exactly be a secret and it won't be, you know, guarded as, as, as heavily. And then, you know, the public and the media will start seeing that and start buying in more. Yep. I look forward to that day. Uh, okay. So speaking of original analysis, uh, people that have listened to you on the show before follow you online, know that you've been doing some really great work in terms of paying attention to, uh, to power plays, which sometimes get lost in the shuffle because we spend so much time thinking about five on five play and, and justifiably so, but there is a lot to be gleaned from this stuff. And, and you've done some great work recently in terms of looking at the flyers, for example, and how, uh, Shane Gostas bear coming into their lineup what sometime in mid-november or so really kind of helped change their season obviously on five on five as well but particularly in the power play where last year they were such such a dominant unit in that regard and at the start of this season they just really were i remember they were surprisingly low on on both in terms of shot generation and goal scoring and and i wondered what was up there and then strike got injured and i thought that would be just sort of a, a total de- death knell for them but it, it it really wasn't and in fact they've got back to what we kind of expected from them in the preseason so 
I don't know, like how much do you, how much of that do you credit to Gostas Bear and how much of it do you give credit to either the coaching staff making changes or just, uh, it would have happened eventually and Gostas Bear has just kind of been there to reap the rewards. I think Gossip Fair was huge. I mean, I think the issue they were having, I mean, first of all, that unit was so good uh, last year, which is what made, you know, it very surprising, even with those same five people in that first unit to see them struggle so much at the beginning of this year. I don't think they changed very much. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the issues with it, they were relying a lot on uh, Jacob Voracek early in the year in terms of serving that sort of Ovechkin role, and they would get pucks over to him from Strite. Um, and he would shoot, and Voracek was on this run of incredibly bad shooting luck, and mm-hmm. you know there were art. He was one of the last big players to score a goal this year. He just couldn't buy it, and he was getting chances. If you watch the power plays, he was getting good looks, and just couldn't find the finishing touch. And it's something that's followed him a little bit all year, but especially early on. And the issue is that Strite, you know, has an okay shot, but he's really more of a puck mover. He's not as much of a scorer. So he was reluctant to take any kind of shots when Drew had the puck on the left. So they would try and filter it over to Voracek. And as I said, Voracek was was particularly snake-bitten. Um, so what happened was Gostas Bear stepped in when Strite went down. And suddenly Gostas Bear is this guy who's willing to shoot at every opportunity and has right. you know a ridiculous shot where it's accurate, it's low, it's it's poised, it's hard, it, you know... It's ridiculous. And he started just shooting at every opportunity off those short one-timer passes. And uh, they have a guy, Wayne Simmons, who's maybe the best, you know, net front player in the NHL in terms of screens. I mean, you know, I started tracking screens uh, halfway through the season, and it's incredible. Almost every shot they take on the power play is screened by Simmons, and it makes such a big difference when he's a guy who's that big but has the, the hands to be able to put rebounds in the net and make plays close in and you know, he's such a big mover for them in terms of power play success. So with him in front and just hammering shots with Gosses Bear, um, and you could even add, you know, double screens with Shen sometimes, you could tip the puck up from the slot. And that was, you know, an incredibly difficult ask for goalies to try and cope with that, um, whether it was the original shot or the rebound. So that started to help a lot. And now they've struggled a little bit recently. And you know, a lot of that has to do with entries as well. I don't really like what they do on entries generally, and I think that most of their success just comes from what that first unit does once it's set up in the zone. Um, but lately, I think you know they've sort of come to rely on Gosses Bear a little too much, and mm-hmm. Voracek is hardly involved in the offense at all. Right. Um, and I think it would serve them a little better if they got him more involved. And you know, even if Gosses Bear uh, was still the primary option, just filtering the puck over to Voracek a little more, whether it's on cross-size passes or plays down low to Simmons and then backdoor passes, things like that that sort of kept the defense honest because now they're cheating almost too much towards that side. Yeah, no, it's, it's we discussed this last time you were on in terms of whether you can have too many cooks in the kitchen and how much you uh, of power play success you attribute to having all the right pieces. And it seems like for the Flyers, uh, it, they just have like the, the the ideal guys for a lot of those kind of trigger man positions. Whereas you said Gosses Bear's shot is incredible from the point, and and Giroux maybe he's not quite Nicholas Backstrom, but he's right up there in terms of guys you'd want making decisions from around that half wall area. And then Simmons is the net front 
And it's not even the, the screens are one thing. And of course, that's incredibly valuable. But watching him, we don't necessarily describe sort of positional awareness much for forwards or particularly guys that are around the net. But he seems to always just be like amazing at setting up passing lanes where he like pivots quickly on a dime and, and has his stick down in the right position where he can tap in an easy, easy pass. And it, it seems kind of obvious and intuitive. And you'd think that everyone would be able to do it. But from watching the league, it's certainly a, a trend that he's mastered that not too many guys can actually do in the NHL. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, power plays are a jigsaw puzzle. They really are. It's you, you have to take guys and they have certain roles. One guy is a passer. One guy is a shooter. One guy is good at screens. One guy is, you know, shifty and has a quick release. And you have to take that into account. You have to take into account their handedness, which is a factor that obviously I harp on a lot and that teams really, for the most part, don't take into account enough. At least that's my feel. Um, and you have to put all that together and try and stick guys in positions where it will succeed. And, and you, you can run into problems if you have, let's say, two-star players who don't fit into those perfect roles. I mean, we've talked about the Penguins before, but you know, Crosby is ideally served as a passer and Malkin is ideally served as a shooter, mm-hmm. but they're both left-handed. So right. you can't put them in the same positions as you put Ovechkin and you put uh, Backstrom if you want them in those optimal positions where the defense can't cheat one way or another. So then it's a matter of, you know, how do we playing around with different things? How do we work the rest of our roster around to give us the best possible power play? And I don't think there's quite enough of that in the league in terms of, you know, trying to fit players into the roles that are best for them and then trying to stay consistent with what those roles are. Yeah. Well, okay, so you mentioned the the carry-ins for the uh for the Flyers and I know you've done a bunch of work in tr- in terms of tracking uh the success that comes from dump-ins and carry-ins and and draw passes and pretty much every any sort of zone entry you could possibly think of and I know uh you found interesting results in the sense that I guess they're in, maybe not that interesting they might just be more intuitive where obviously carry-ins are still sort of the desired thing you'd you'd want to do but dump-ins aren't as harmful just because it makes sense that you'd have the extra guy and you'd be more likely to retrieve the puck but I don't know. It's weird. Uh, I, I, from your actual kind of raw data, I thought the success from dump-ins was still slightly higher than I would have thought just because it seems like you're sort of wasting unnecessary time in those puck battles, even though you're ultimately going to win them. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was something that I didn't really account for And that. I mean, that was a very sort of simple first level study in terms of just how many shots you get from each thing. Um, but I would totally, I mean, the, the difference between power plays and even strength is just, you're not only working against the other team, you're working against the clock. Yes. And that's something that people forget sometimes in the sense that, you know, you have two minutes and any second that isn't spent in a, in a dangerous position is a second wasted. Um, and just because you're preventing the other team from getting a chance by having the puck deep in their zone like you would at even strength, on the power play, that's not really an advantage. So definitely, you know, in terms of raw just shots from each entry, let's say, uh, dump-ins aren't as damaging uh, on the power play as they are at even strength. But as you mentioned, you know, you're wasting often 6, 10, 15 seconds not only just getting the puck back, but then you have the puck back and your guys are in haphazard places around the ice. And if you're a team like the Caps or the Flyers that has a very strict uh, structure in terms of where they put guys, you have to take the time to get those people into those places while you keep control of the puck, which isn't always an easy thing to do if it hasn't been you know carefully practiced. So that kills another, let's say, 10 seconds. So you know you could end up just you can have a dump in that you end up recovering but by the time you get set up and are in position to have any kind of a dangerous chance you might have wasted 25 30 seconds and that's a quarter of your power play Mm -hmm. so that's definitely something to keep into account so 
I mean, my view on dump-ins is still um, I would probably only use them uh, in cases where nothing is going right on that particular day and you just want to avoid killing the momentum and trying to get something out of it because, you know, if you're if you're developing a zone entry scheme, like you have an extra person. I mean, we've talked about this before, but there isn't really any excuse to not be able to come up with something that you can do fairly consistently and, you know, let's say be successful on it, you know, even if it's 50 percent of the time. Um, but still, you know, once you're when you're successful with it, you're set up in formation in three or four seconds, uh, like the caps often are, and then you're ready to do your damage. Yeah. Okay. So where do you stand on draw passes though? Because I, I think they're the perfect storm for people's, uh, I guess, cognitive bias or inherent risk aversion where when it doesn't work out and it winds up going back the other way and potentially even costing uh, the team a shorthanded goal against, it looks really bad and people can sort of subconsciously latch onto that and just uh, think that it's the worst play in the world. But I don't know, does the data sort of support that? Or do you think that uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's a perfectly fine strategy depending on the personnel you have yeah well unfortunately the data was kind of uh you know unclear in terms of didn't reveal any any true answer to whether drop passes are good and i think it depends a lot on team i mean one of the interesting things with that study i did on drop passes was the fact that for the flyers it was actually had a really good payoff in terms of of doing the drop passes and the reason for that is because you have guys like Giroux and voracek you know, coming up to claim those passes and, you know, you get those guys coming at your defense with speed. Even if you stack the line with three or four guys, they can find ways to weave in. So it's not going to be a disastrous play, even if it's, you know, not the best. And maybe on occasion it might result in a a pass that's picked off, but you know, it's going to work a decent amount of the time. The issue I have with it is a team like the Flyers, you have a Giroux and a Voracek and a Strite when he's on that unit is a pretty good puck handler you should be able to craft an entry scheme that isn't a drop entry scheme and still get that, that, you know, that advantage you would get in terms of approaching the line with speed. Um, but I mean, you know, some of that is, is more of a philosophical thing on my point and, uh, part in terms of watching what the caps do and, and liking some of the entry schemes that they have. Um, and it's hard to know without, without seeing teams without that exact, uh, mix of personnel trying that kind of thing. But I just generally feel like there isn't enough structure when it comes to zone entries on the power play. And draw passes are one of the, the only avenues we see for a lot of teams where there is that structure. It's they come up and the two one or two guys trail and then the pass is dropped and they come into the zone. And it's fairly structured and you know it works an okay percent of the time and it kills a couple more seconds, which isn't ideal. But you know, it works a decent amount and you know, it kind of shows you that if you can do that, you can probably set up a slightly more complex entry scheme that if you practice it enough, that'll be even more successful. Yeah. Uh, before we get out of here, I wanted to talk quickly about the Ducks because I hadn't really noticed it until you brought it up on Twitter, but they're leading the league in terms of both power play and penalty kill, which seems like, I, I don't know, do you, do you know when last time that's happened? I, I, I can't think of a recent example. Uh, yeah, so I actually saw this on the uh, Ducks broadcast when I was watching them the other day, so thanks to them for this mm, nugget. But the yes. last time that happened was the 1984-85 New York Islanders. Ooh. So it's been a while, and um, granted that is penalty kill and power play percentage. Right. It's not goals 4 per 60, which they're they're first in in penalty kill, but they're third uh, in power play behind the Caps and the Blues. Mm-hmm. But still, I mean, if you consider how good of an even-strength team they've been this year, especially with the changes Boudreaux made, and then you add on the fact that they have really a really solid power play. You look at what they do, um, and bringing in a guy like Peary will help as well. Um, and then their penalty kill is 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 a really good unit too. They rotate all their D. 
who are all really solid. Um, they have a first unit in Kessler and Silverberg that is both dangerous shorthanded and are very sound positionally. And they just have such depth in both those positions that they can just kind of roll guys out there, duos that they like, and, and get it done. It's interesting because uh, looking ahead potentially to a second round matchup between the Ducks and the Kings, there's not that much separating them at five on five, especially this year where the Ducks have just elevated their game uh, from a puck possession perspective. And those are two of the kind of premier teams in the league at this point in that regard. And and potentially that special teams play could wind up making all the difference in the world, especially in a in a short four to seven game series where if they get a couple easy goals in that regard and maybe prevent a couple the other way, all of a sudden that could really swing that and you don't know it hasn't gotten much attention or much traction because a lot of the stories have been about how they've redefined their game at five on five into a more possession style or possession oriented approach but that's 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 crazy to me that they're leading the league in both of those categories yeah you know it pains me to say this as somebody who's studying special teams so much but if you look at the last few years and you know, how some of these teams have done. It just seems like year to year, there's so much variation in how teams perform because we always think of like the Hawks and the Kings, especially as two teams that are so good on the penalty kill and have struggled with their power play in the playoffs in particular. And this year, the Hawks and Kings have two of the best power plays in the league Mm. and both of their penalty kills haven't been very good. So, you know, you ask these questions of, you know, as I've, you know, said before and written about, you know, there isn't a lot in this stuff that's particularly predictive. And I mean, I've been looking at a few other other metrics that I've been developing and, and going through some testing with the last few weeks. And it's really hard to find anything in terms of special teams that's predictive. And, you know, a lot of it just has to be sort of microanalysis and looking at just things that they do on a play-to-play basis and, and the essentially the inputs rather than the outputs because the outputs are just so unpredictable. So I agree. I mean, it, it, if you have a power play that's, or a penalty kill that's at the extremes of the league. That's definitely something uh, that's going to be an advantage come the playoffs. But it's also so hard to tell um, beyond just looking at you know some of the some of the particular players they have and the things they do. What what is going to work and what isn't. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're uh, you're doing all the all the heavy lifting here because uh, it, it's cool. It's it's fun to kind of read about this stuff, even as you sort of uh, bring that caveat in where it might not be that predictive, and we still don't know how important it is. That doesn't kind of diminish the fact that it's interesting stuff to read about and think about because uh, we discuss in, in analytics all the time how you're it's it's incremental gains and you're looking for little advantages where so many teams are stacked together in the hierarchy that anything could put you over the top and potentially finding something here could be really beneficial so I'm, I'm really excited to see where you where you take this project and uh, I don't know this is the opportunity for you to kind of plug the work you're doing where people can find you online and what they can look forward to moving forward yeah definitely so the website is nhlspecialteams.com the uh, pace of articles has slowed a little bit but I'm still trying to publish stuff as, as uh, often as possible. And uh, I often have insights at my Twitter feed at Eric Parnas. And I will be at the uh, Vancouver Hockey Analytics Conference in April presenting on something uh, of which I'm not sure yet, but hopefully <laughs> it'll be something uh, particularly influential. Uh, I promise it'll at least be interesting, if not practical. So uh, I hope to see many of many of the listeners there. Well, how about uh, let's uh, let's promise i guess maybe not promise let's let's preliminarily plan to uh record an in-person show while you're here and and we'll see what uh what do you what, what you're kind of getting up to at that time and maybe we'll we'll just take it from there yeah that would be awesome cool man okay we'll talk then great 
the Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast. <laughs>